0: Let's pray as we approach God's Word. God, it is, uh, it is so good um, to be able to gather with your people, and, and I just love the words of that song, and um, that's our prayer this morning. Our prayer is that you would speak, that you would teach, that you would strengthen us so that we could continue to walk by faith. And the incredible promises that you have given to us. So, Father, now as we approach your word, we do ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth that is contained in these verses. And more than that, Lord, that you would give us hearts that are eager to obey and to follow you. Thank you, God, so much for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good morning, uh, everyone. Um, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Mark chapter 7. We're in Mark 7 this morning. Uh, Mark 7, 1 through 13 is our text this morning, uh, and it's all about tradition, and it's all about specifically what Jesus has to say about tradition. And, and if you think about it, there are a lot of different traditions that uh, are out there when it comes to the church. I mean, we just celebrated one a few moments ago with a baby dedication. Um, now, this this idea uh, of traditions in the church was made abundantly clear to me uh, when we were uh, five years ago, right before we launched uh, our, our congregation here, I, I received a number of phone calls from people. Uh, questions about what traditions our church would have. And so uh, I had questions about what Bible translation we would use. And and the question, of course, was, will you use the KJV or not? I had questions about what time our services will be. Will they be on a Sunday morning or will they be some other time during the week? Will uh, we have um, uh, services with, um, well, I'll I'll just say it, how long will you preach? In these services, which always means, uh, are you going to preach too long? Uh, And they never give the answer to what the right answer, they never say what the right answer to that question is. Uh, What types of sermons will you preach? I don't even know what that question means. I still don't to this day. On and on and on, all these different types of questions about what types of traditions our church would have. And traditions are not inherently wrong. I want to get that out of the way right Right away, they're, they're oftentimes good things. Like, as I just mentioned, um, this idea of a baby dedication, it's, it's not, a, it's not a, it's something that's commanded in scripture, but it can be a, a good thing that we do. And if you were to turn to your neighbor and you were to ask them, what are some family traditions that you have? I'm sure that there would be a lot of, of great things that would be shared. Or if you were to, to say, hey, uh, to your neighbor, what are some of the, the traditions that we have at Crosswinds? You would probably hear something like, well, the first Sunday of the month, we have communion. Or during the the summer, we take a break from our Crosswinds classes. Uh, Sometimes we have potlucks. We have life groups that meet every other week, and on and on and on. And in the midst of all of these different traditions, I want us to, to, again, just say there is nothing inherently wrong with most or many traditions. And so it may surprise us as we look at Mark chapter 7 that there is this conflict that is brewing under the surface in Jesus' earthly ministry that really comes to a head here in this text. Jesus has some extremely harsh words to say to those who hold so tightly to their traditions that they instead compromise their commitment to the Word of God. And the Gospel of Mark, in large part, is a gospel that is focused on conflict, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, is in the midst of this conflict, and there's this increasing tension, this increasing conflict between him and the religious establishment of the day. And we see this for the first time in Mark chapter 2 and 3. We have five stories, back to back to back to back to back, where all of them detail these various confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders. And after each of these stories, Mark wants us to answer a question. As we look at these stories, who is the one who is in charge? Or maybe a better way of saying that is, who is the one who has divine authority? Is it Jesus, or is it the religious leaders? In the midst of all of this conflict, who has God's blessing? Who is the one who is authoritative to be able to teach God's true word? And now this morning, we have turned a corner in the Gospel of Mark. We see that Jesus' popularity, it peaks at the feeding of the 5,000. It peaks after Jesus walks on water, and now we're getting to a point where his, uh, his popularity with the crowds, it begins to decrease. And the hostility that Jesus begins to experience from the religious leaders, is it's on the rise. And as we look at this text, right after Jesus feeds the 5,000, Right after Jesus has walked on water, we now look at this text and have to ask the question, who has divine authority? Is it Jesus or is it the religious leaders? And this morning's text is really quite straightforward. In fact, if we were to sum it up in a a, a prohibition, a negative statement, which is really, this this passage is pretty pretty critical of of the religious leaders. I think we could just sum this up by saying it this way. Don't sacrifice obedience to God's word... For the sake of temporary traditions, don't sacrifice obedience to God's word for the sake of temporary traditions. Our text breaks apart into three distinct sections. First is the background. Verses 1 through 4. Then there's a question, verse 5. And then the rest is Jesus' rebuke in the rest of the chapter, or rest of the verses. So let's work our way through this text this morning, and uh, then we're going to look at some uh, modern day implications when it comes to Jesus and tradition today. So if you have a Bible, uh, please follow along, starting in Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands, Our, tre- uh, our text begins with this task force that is sent from the religious elites in Jerusalem. They're sent from Jerusalem up to Galilee to, to observe Jesus and his ministry. Now this group, they can't deny that Jesus is doing some pretty spectacular things. They can't deny Jesus' powerful teaching. They can't deny Jesus' power seen in miracles. But the question that they are trying to answer is where does Jesus get this power from? Does Jesus get this power from God, or does he get this power from the devil? And that's in Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. There's a, there's a text that really dives into this. Where does Jesus' power come from? Now, in this text, we don't know how long the religious authorities are with Jesus we don't know how long they're walking around with him, watching him, waiting to pounce on the smallest misstep that he makes, and, and I just imagine that there's this crowd that's gathered around Jesus, and they're standing at the back, they're standing with scowls on their faces, and they're standing with their clipboards, and they're ready, just waiting for Jesus to say one wrong thing, but there's a problem, it never happens. They wait, and they wait, and wait, and they never find anything that Jesus says that they can criticize, and they observe Jesus, and he is this perfectly obedient Israelite. In fact, that's one thing that might not have been immediately clear in the text before this that we looked at last week. In, in, in verse 56 of chapter 6, there's this summary of Jesus' healings throughout the region of Galilee, and then it says this in Mark chapter six fifty Verse 56, And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So here, people are flocking to Jesus, and they're hoping that they can even just grab uh, uh, the, the edge of his garment. And yes, this is a declaration of just how powerful Jesus is, but there's something even more significant about this phrase, and it's found in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 15. This is a command from God to the people of Israel, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner, and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So here are these people, and they are flocking to Jesus, hoping to, to even just get the chance to touch the, the edge, the fringe, or, or the tassels on his garments, And again, this this stresses the power of Jesus that he can heal just by someone touching his clothes. But also at the same time, it shows how completely faithful Jesus is. Every single commandment that God has given to his people, Israel, Jesus keeps them all. He is the perfectly faithful, obedient son. He keeps the law at all times in a way that no other Israelite ever has. And here, Jesus proves himself to be the one who is worthy. Now imagine how frustrating this is for the religious leaders. Here they are, they're waiting for Jesus to to mess up so that they can discredit him, and they're waiting and waiting and waiting, and nothing ever happens. The moment never comes, and so eventually they lower their standards and they say, all right, well, if we can't catch him, then we're going to go after his disciples instead. And we're going to find something that they're doing, or rather, that they're not doing that we can criticize. And so they observe that Jesus' disciples are not performing the ceremonial ritual of washing their hands before they eat. So that's, that's the, the key crux of the issue right here. His disciples are not washing their hands before they eat Now this doesn't have to do with germs. I have a cold right now, and it didn't come from not washing my hands. This is not an issue of good hygiene. This is something else in mind here. In fact, Mark takes a few moments in, in verses three and four. Mark is writing to this Gentile audience in Rome, and he pauses and he explains what's going on here for this audience that would not really understand. So what is going on here? Well, the first thing to recognize, as I said, is this word clean your hands or, or wash your hands can be a little bit misleading here. This isn't a, a question of common sense. This isn't a question of good hygiene. This is instead something that is, uh, involves ceremonial laws or, or specific rituals in order to make yourself right or clean before God. So this is a specific ritual that the Jews had in mind that concerned your state before God. It wasn't the prevention of disease here. So when, when uh, the text uses this phrase, clean, or, or wash, uh, here it's fine as long as we understand that we're not actually talking about what we would usually say when you, or what we would usually mean when we say, go wash your hands before you go eat. Now, this didn't look like washing your hands the way we do either, and that didn't just that just wasn't, or that wasn't just the case because uh, they didn't have running water. This was a specific ritual that you had to perform, uh, and it involved three different things. The first, you would take a little bit of water, and you would you would hold your hand out like this. So uh, why don't you guys go ahead and hold your hand out like this, okay? You hold your hand out like this, and you'd pour a little bit of water on your fingertips, and, and the water would run down your hand all the way, and then would run off your elbow. And that would be one of the ways that you would uh, symbolize that you are now ceremonially clean. So then you would do that to the other hand. The next thing is what you would do is you would hold your hand like this. So go ahead and hold your hands like this as well. And now you would pour your ha- water on your hand like this and it would run off of your hands, off of your fingertips uh, as, a, as another way to show that you are ceremonially clean. And then after that you would do something with both of your hands uh, as a way to to symbolize that you are clean. And so every single time as you approached a meal the traditions that the Jews had in the first century said that this is what you would do. You would hold your hands up, and you would wash it this way, and then you'd hold your hands down, and you'd wash it this way, and then you'd wash your hands together in a very, very simple and yet very, very complex motion. Now, here's the, the issue that's taking place. Jesus' disciples aren't doing that. They aren't doing it in the marketplace. They aren't doing it at home. They aren't doing it in between their meals. And so, the religious authorities look at Jesus and say, what gives? Why aren't your disciples keeping the traditions of the elders? Now, so the first thing to recognize is that this, is, uh, this deals with ceremonial purity. The second thing to recognize is the origins of this practice. After all, uh, we can say, well, there's a lot of ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. Is this actually found in the Old Testament? Now, the Old Testament required certain people to do ceremonial washings before they would do certain things. Okay, So, certain people and certain things, but not for everyone. It was only for the priests and it was only before they entered into the temple or into the tabernacle, or in other words, as they entered into God's presence. But nowhere in the law is this required of everyone. So a couple hundred years before Jesus' ministry, some some Jews that were really serious about their faith, they looked at all these laws about ceremonially uh, cleansing the, the, um, the, the priests, and they said, you know what? The book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, it tells us that not just the priests are priests, but actually God looks at all of us as priests. In fact, let's go ahead and throw that up there. Exodus chapter 19, it says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So these people, a couple hundred years before Jesus' birth, they're, they're looking at, at the Old Testament and all these laws, and they say, hey, you know what? God considers all of us to be priests. God considers all of us to be set apart. And so you know what we should do to show that we are serious about our faith? Well, we should go ahead and do what the priests are commanded to do in the Old Testament. So this is a tradition, but I want us to, to recognize it probably started with really good intentions started with really good intentions to show that we are serious about our faith. We are serious about worshiping God. And we're going to look more at the, the origins of it here in a moment. But they're beginning to, to have this, it begins with this mindset of, you know, we're, we're set apart for God. And we want to show God, we want to show a watching world how serious we are about our commitment to God. So that's a couple hundred years before Jesus, and this practice really takes off, and, and pretty soon it becomes commonplace among all people in Israel. By the time uh, Jesus comes on the scene in the first century, it was, it was actually unheard of for a devout Jew to not practice this ceremonial washing as a sign of their worship to God. And this was especially the case if you were in the marketplace. If you notice in Mark chapter 6, verse 56, it says that Jesus is doing these healings in the marketplace, and here in Mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 4, it emphasizes that Jesus or it emphasizes this importance of cleansing yourself when you've come from the marketplace. And there's this this focus here is when you are in the marketplace, you are going to interact with some people who are unclean. You're going to interact with Gentiles. You're going to interact with Samaritans. And the first thing that you need to do when you get home is to cleanse yourself, to recognize that you are not like them. Instead, you are set apart for God. So this is all of the context that is taking place here, all of the background of what is about to happen. And then we cut into our second section, or the second point, and that's the, the, the question that is leveled toward Jesus from the religious authority. So they're, they're watching Jesus in this public place, and they can't find any fault in him, but then they notice, well, hey, your disciples aren't, aren't consistently keeping these traditions that we've set aside here. And so they have the field day, and the second part of this text is verse 5, the question. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So here, the religious authorities level this question at Jesus. Even though it's his disciples who are not keeping this tradition... We don't know if Jesus is or not. The, the text just tells us that, that the disciples are the ones who are not doing it. Jesus is their rabbi, and as such, he's the one who, who ultimately has to, to answer for this, the one who ultimately shoulders the blame. And so what is the accusation here? Well, I think there's, there's two components to it, or two pieces. First, notice that it says that they do not walk according to the tradition of the elders. Now, the word walk in the Bible is oftentimes used to refer to a lifestyle, and so what's, what's taking view here is they're saying, you're not keeping the tradition of the elders here. And that probably means that you're not living a lifestyle where you're doing this in the rest of your life. You're, 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 you're living these lives where you're just continuing to break all of these traditions. Now, the Pharisees held their traditions in a really high regard. That's why they called it the tradition, uh, the tradition of the elders. And, and to break one of these traditions was actually an extremely serious offense. Later on, after Jesus' birth, uh, or after Jesus' ministry, uh, and I think it was the 200s or the 300s AD, uh, a, a Jewish rabbi actually said, uh, a couple of them said, that um, it's more serious to break a tradition than it is to disobey the Bible. So this is a very serious offense here in their minds, and I want us to explain or to understand why. If, you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the people of Israel are chosen by God, they're set apart by God, and God says, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to use you to bless all of the nations, and I just want you to be faithful, I want you to follow me, I want, I want you to keep these commandments. Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, that's not at all what happens. The people of Israel almost immediately turn their back on God, and God sends prophet after prophet after prophet, says, hey, repent, return to me, return to me. And sometimes they do, sometimes most of the time they don't, and eventually God sends them into exile. And it was in that moment, they were gone for 70 years from the land, God brings them back, and only a remnant, only these who are really serious about their faith, return to the land of Israel. And one of those, coincidentally, was Ezra. Now these people returned to the land, and a couple generations after Ezra, in between the the Old Testament and the New Testament, some of the scribes say, hey, you know what, the reason we were kicked out of the land is because we did not keep the law. And we need to do whatever we can to make sure that we continue to keep the law for generation after generation after generation. So what we're going to do is we're going to create new laws new traditions, and we're going to build a fence around the law. We're going to create these new laws so that way, even if people break this, well, they haven't actually broken the law yet, so that way we can remain in the land. And, and we do this today, or some people do this today. Some people, if the speed limit is 55, they say, I'm not going to drive over 50 or, or 52 or, or whatever the case, because they, they take it very seriously that I'm not going to break the speed limit, and so instead, I'm going to only drive 50, five miles under, so that way I never actually break the law. So this is a a common thing that that some people do uh, to this day. And the Pharisees, they see these these actions of Jesus' disciples, and they they look at it and say, okay, that right there, that is the heart that led to us being sent into exile, this this lack of concern for, for God's law. And over the years, we have this effort to build this protective fence, generation after generation. They develop these rules and these ceremonies and these rituals, all kinds of prohibitions. They take the rituals and ceremonies, such as as priestly hand washing, and they force them upon all people. And, and and let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt. It probably starts as a very good thing, but the time, but by the time we get to Jesus's day, this is an in insufferable weight on the people of God. So the first accusation is that they're living this lifestyle that is cavalier, that doesn't care about following God, which is a a really big conclusion to reach just because they don't follow a tradition. So that's the first accusation. The second one is, is similar. The lifestyle that they're leading, it leads to these defiled hands, and by implication, it leads to defiled hearts. What's, what's in view here, the concern here from the, the Pharisees and, and the religious authorities is this heart. By breaking the tradition of the elders, the disciples have shown that they have cut themselves off from God's presence and they're far from God. It's all because they won't keep these traditions. So that's the accusation here from the religious authorities. Well, how does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus responds with a rebuke, and that's what the rest of our text focuses on. So let's start with Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 6 through 8. And he, Jesus, said to them, "'Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men.'" What does Jesus do in light of this accusation directed toward him and directed toward his disciples? Well, he opens his Bible. What a novel concept. The scribes point to their traditions. Jesus points to the Bible. And rather than denying that his disciples are actually breaking these traditions, he says, well, let me, let me see what the Bible says. And he, he opens Scripture, and he, he goes to Isaiah chapter 29. And he opens to Isaiah 29, and, and he rebukes them in, in this quotation. So why does Isaiah or why does Jesus refer to them as as hypocrites here? Well, um, the word hypocrite uh, we're, we're probably familiar with it. It's a, a very common word today, especially leveled toward uh, Christians today, isn't it? Um, the oftentimes it's used to refer to a person who has uh, words and actions that don't meet. Right? They don't. They don't. They don't match. So you're saying one thing and yet you're living a different way, and, and that's. That's accurate, but it it kind of misses what Jesus is referring to here. How does Jesus define a hypocrite based off of this text, based off of what the Pharisees are doing? Well, it's not a a difference between one's words and actions. Instead, it's saying, hey, you're living, your words and your actions, they're, they're lockstep. But what's the problem? Your heart is far from me. The word hypocrite comes from the realm of acting. You're pretending to be someone that you are not. And that's all good in the theater. You'd be a pretty bad actor if you didn't pretend to be someone you're not. But it's not a good thing in real life, is it? And so when Jesus looks at the religious authorities and calls them hypocrites, he's not saying, hey, you got words and actions that don't line up. He's saying, hey, you're doing these things, you're saying these things, and your heart is far, far far from God. You've claimed that my disciples have defiled hands and by implications defiled hearts. Well, you're the ones who have defiled hearts. There is this disconnect here between your words and actions and what your heart actually says about who you are. This is what Jesus means when he quotes Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, and it says this, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts... Are far from me. The focus here here isn't so much on tradition. The focus instead is on the hearts of the people. Whatever may have started with good intentions has now been infected by this spirit of of one-upsmanship. Well, I'm going to prove that I'm better than you because I'm the one who actually follows all these rules and regulations. What had once maybe been a way to boldly declare I'm different than the pagans around me, that I am serious about following God, now is a notch in their own belts that says, look how good I am. Look at my own righteousness. And before we continue, can we just pause and, and consider the ways that sometimes that same exact heart creeps into our own actions Even those that start with the best of intentions today. Don't even even think about traditions right now. Just think of of the things that you do. And and we start them with with the best of intentions. And yet, soon enough, as time goes on, if we're not careful, our heart drifts. A commitment to Bible study and prayer comes from a heart that really earnestly wants to know God more and more. And yet, after a few months, if we're not careful, it just becomes another checkbox that we have to, to mark off. Meeting with an accountability partner starts because you want to grow in your faith. You want to become serious about becoming more and more holy, more and more like Christ. And yet, after a particularly embarrassing sin, you decide, hey, I'm just going to opt to share a couple less serious sins and and keep that one hidden because it's so embarrassing. You want to protect your pride. Or you're at home and, and it's nighttime and you're, you're, you start by, by praying with your kids and your spouse because you want so desperately to, to instill in them this gospel-saturated home. And, and I'll, I'll confess, nighttime comes and bedtime routines happen and kids come out and out and out and out. And all at the end of the day, I just want to get through those prayers so quick so that way they can go to bed. What starts with the best of intentions can quickly devolve into something else. Jesus reveals to us this incredibly challenging heart posture in the religious authorities that we can probably see in our own lives as well. Jesus implies that God does not want religious ceremony divorced from a heart that genuinely worships the Father. God does not care about religiosity if your heart is not actually worshiping God. So what does your heart reveal about your worship? You see, Jesus spends more next week, in the next next week's passage, verses 14 through 23, talking about the heart. But here, he, he finishes this quote from Isaiah by saying this, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So the first fault that Jesus finds with these people is that their hearts are divorced from worship. The second fault is that they have allowed tradition to supersede Scripture. Tradition has taken the place of Scripture. It is now in the highest place, not the, the Word of God. What matters most to these people is not the the clear commands of God, but making sure that they keep these these fences that they've built around God's word. And Jesus says in verse 8 that this has resulted in them leaving behind the commandments of God. They've left behind God's word, and then he gives a specific example. And it's interesting, he says in verse 13, that this is just one of many things that they do. So let me give you a specific example, starting in verse 9. And Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have given me or whatever you would have uh, gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. How is it that their traditions cause people to break the commandments of Scripture? Well, Jesus gives us an example. He says the Pharisees are, are actually invoking God's name in order to break God's word. That's essentially what he's saying. You're using God's name in order to break God's word. So let's walk through this. Jesus quotes two passages from Exodus, one from the Ten Commandments, one right after the Ten Commandments, that talk about how important it is to God to honor your parents. And this isn't just focused on those who still are in the home. This is addressed to adult children talking about their parents. And this is a time before Social Security. This is a time before retirement plans. It was culturally accepted that your children were your retirement plan. And so for you to not take care of your parents as they were aging is actually reprehensible to God. That's what he says in this Exodus 21 quotation here. But there was this tradition in the first century that said, you know, there's a lot of different commandments out there, and so we're going to start to prioritize them. And one of the most important commandments that you can keep is keeping your vows that you've made to God. When all else fails, keep your vows. It's more important than any other commandment in the Bible. And that's what's in view when Jesus talks about this Aramaic word, Corban. Some people would make these vows to God, saying, you know what, I'm going to give something special to the temple, or Corban, I'm going to give it to the temple. I'm vowing to give it to you, God. I haven't given it to you yet. And because they vow before God it is now unbreakable if you change your mind that's too bad what what takes most importance in this tradition is the vow that you've made so these vows that they have made they supersede all other keepment keeping of commandments even if that means as we see here that a vow nullifies the word of god so if you notice, the religious authorities, they're not just elevating tradition over the word of God. In their tradition, they're actually saying, well, we, we can't keep all scripture, so let's pick and choose. Let's pick and choose which parts of the Bible we're actually going to be able to keep. And so they, they pit the word of God against the word of God, and they say, we're gonna make a decision on what is more important in God's eyes. Now, vows are important in God's eyes. God expects his people to keep them. Numbers chapter 30, if a man vows a vow to the Lord... Or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Vows are important to God, but Jesus rejects the notion that one command in Scripture can cancel out another command in Scripture. If your vow leads you to disobey God in some area, then what should be broken is not the commandment, it should be the vow that is broken. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, Judges chapter 11 tells us a story of this. Judges 11 tells us the story of this man, Jephthah. And Jephthah is about to lead the people of Israel into battle against some of their enemies. And he says, God, if you give me victory, I vow that whatever greets me on my return home, I will sacrifice to you. And he's thinking probably of a cow or, or what other, uh, some other form of livestock. Well, he gets home, and the first thing that comes out is his only daughter. And right then, Jephthah has a decision to make. Am I going to keep my vow or am I going to clearly keep what is said in God's word? Am I going to kill my daughter because of some rash, foolish thing that I said or am I going to keep my word? What what matters more to me, my word or my God? And Jephthah decides to sacrifice His daughter, and the implication in Judges is that Jephthah worships God in a way that God hates. And the Pharisees are doing the exact same thing here. They're worshiping God in a way that he absolutely despises. So, what can we learn from this text? What can we learn from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13? Well, we said it in a negative way. Don't sacrifice obedience to God's word for the sake of temporary traditions. Let's look at it in a positive way. What does this passage not just prohibit? What does it encourage for us? Well, I think it would be this. Disciples hold to the word of God with their whole mind, their whole heart, and their whole will. Disciples hold to the word of God with their whole mind, Their whole heart and their whole will. This is less about tradition and it's more about your heart and obedience to God. So let's look at those each individually. First is about honoring or holding to the word of God with your whole mind. The underlying assumption of this entire passage is that they actually know the word of God. They actually know what God's word says, and so he wants them to hold faithfully to the word of God, not to sacrifice it on the altar of tradition, but in order to do that, you first have to know what it says. Disciples hold to the word of God with their whole mind. Second, disciples hold to the word of God with their whole heart. God's people don't just simply go through the motions of religiosity with this heart that is completely divorced from their words and practice. To hold to the word of God is not just to, to know what God's word says, but to actually grasp it, to let it sink into the crevices of your life, to recognize that your heart cannot be divorced from your actions. And the third thing is, is this, the disciples hold, a disciple holds to the word of God with their whole will. In other words, those who follow Jesus are willing to do what his word says. Willing to do what his word says. They keep the commandments of God, plain and simple. That's the most important thing to them. They recognize that worshiping God involves your mind. It involves your heart. But true worship doesn't happen without a will to obey what God's word actually says. And this engagement of our our minds, our hearts, and our wills, that's Jesus' concern in the first century. That's Jesus' concern today as well. I said before, traditions are not inherently wrong. What what matters to God is that we are following Him with our minds, our hearts, and our will. You can look at some of the traditions that we've done today, even in this service. We sang modern worship songs that aren't mentioned in the Bible, but to do so without a heart that is actually engaged in the words that you say will, will lead God to the same exact proclamation in vain do they worship me. We had a greeting time today. Greeting times are not found in the Bible. They're, they're actually quite controversial if you've ever looked at Christian blog posts uh, about ministry. Should you have a greeting time? Should you not? And I probably go back once a month uh, between positions. Should we? Yeah, we should. No, no, we shouldn't. And, and it just varies off of who I read. Greeting times can be polarizing for this exact reason. For some people, greeting times can actually be a a way that that they are abdicated of responsibility to actually love others. They say, well, I I shook their hands. I said hi. I don't have to be hospitable to them outside of of worship. I, I just have to do that on Sunday mornings. And if that is what it means for us, then we are making void the commandments of God to hold to the traditions of men. Baby dedications today. Now, there's nothing in the New Testament that talks about dedicating a a child in front of the church, but it can be a wonderful and powerful moment. It can be a a way to commit before others if your heart is actually engaged, or it can be an abdication of responsibility. It can be a dead tradition. Say, well, I don't have to worry about that because I've already done that. it, It all matters on your whole mind, your whole heart, and your whole will worshiping God. Jesus rebukes all of these religious leaders that are living uh, hypocritical lives, and he, and he rebukes them with Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah 29, really powerful passage uh, in the book of Isaiah. The entire chapter is found in the context of God saying, hey, you haven't followed me, you haven't obeyed me, and so I'm kicking you out of the land. We already talked about this context of exile. But then it ends with this incredible promise where God says, I'm going to restore you. Not because of your faithfulness, not because of your ability to keep the law, but instead because I am faithful. Notice how this text ends. And just consider how it it, it really is fulfilled in Jesus. It says this, and that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore, Thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. Disciples hold fast to the word of God with their whole mind, their whole heart, and their whole will. And if you are someone whose mind, heart, or will is far from God, this very, very harsh passage in Isaiah chapter 29 ends by reminding us that there is mercy available beyond measure. By charging us to hold fast to the word of God to worship him with our whole hearts, with our whole minds, and have wills that are willing to obey him no matter the cost. Disciples, hold fast to the word of God with their whole mind, their whole heart, and their whole will. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that you would enable us to keep it We ask for forgiveness for the times where our hearts have been far from you, where we have just gone through the motions, and oftentimes it can happen several different times during the week. So help us, Father, to be people that cling to you, that hold fast to you, and not do it through our own strength, but through the strength that you provide through your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.